Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We continue our Epiphany series with this sermon showing the conflict between wealth and the kingdom of God. Wealth, at its center, is about working, achieving, having, and getting. But at the center of the kingdom of God is self-sacrificial love. You're listening to Windows on the Word, The Rich Young Man, by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 19, verses 16 through 26. That's found on page 1,532 in your pew Bibles. Uh, We continue our sermon series, for those of you who are guests, our sermon series on windows on the Word. These are all uh, sermons on texts that are found in our windows. And this is the text uh, on... The, the young man, the rich young man who, who was not able to follow Jesus because of his wealth. And that window is like the fifth lancet from the back. Lancet is the name of those tall pointy things. Uh, the fifth lancet from the back, right at the bottom. And, but if you can't see it there, look at the front of your bulletin. It's right on the front of your bulletin. And you can see Jesus sort of talking to this young man. And this young man has begun to turn away. And he's got this bag on his shoulder, which is the symbol of all the stuff in his life that he just can't leave behind to follow Jesus. Let's read the story as Matthew tells it. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and your mother, love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, perfect here is the sense of fully mature, fully formed. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasures in heaven, and then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, It is hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is the word of the Lord. In one of his books, a famous um, missiologist, history of missions writer, a man named Andrew Walls, who died recently, wrote that one of the things that makes Christianity different from other religions, sort of unique, is that it is a de-centered religion. And this is what he meant by that. Most other religions are attached to a place, like they have a capital city and, and one steady culture that they're associated with. So Judaism, Jerusalem, Jewish culture. Islam, Mecca, Arab culture. But Christianity is incarnational. 
So it takes slightly different forms in whatever culture it enters into, and it doesn't really have a capital city. The center of, of, of gravity, the center of energy for Christianity historically has moved around. And then Walls adds this observation. If you think about it, when you watch how the center of Christianity has moved around, what you notice is that it moves away from wealth. The places where wealth grows in the long term don't tend to be places where Christianity grows. And Rome, capital city of Christianity at the beginning, the center of energy, got very decadent, toppled over, the center moves away, Christianity moves away, where does it go next? Sort of into Europe, northern Europe. Europe gets richer and richer, the center of energy of Christianity moves away from Europe and ends up over in the United States, North America. We've been getting richer and richer, faith is stagnating here, where's it going? The south, the global south, Africa, South America. It's an observable historical trend and it is an observable historical trend predicted by Jesus who said, it is easier for a rich man, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus predicted this trend. Why is that? Why do wealth and faith not always coexist so well together? It's not because wealth in and of itself is evil, right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying wealth is evil, and the rest of Scripture doesn't say that, but there's something going on here. Why is that? It's a really important question because it's a question that's facing us. We are the wealthy. By historical standards and by global standards, we are fabulously wealthy. The, the rich man who walked away from Jesus would fall flat in his face if he saw the luxuries that we enjoy today. And that's all of us. I'm, I'm not preaching this sermon to some of you here. I'm preaching it to all of you here. Maybe some of you are thinking of a person next to you who has higher adjusted gross income and say, oh, Peter must be talking to them. No, I'm talking to all of us. And it's important that we think about this uneasiness with wealth and Christianity because it's something that doesn't just show up in this passage. Scripture is very pointed and clear about this conflict. The Bible has all kinds of stories and warnings. Bob read one of them earlier in the service, right? That parable about the man who spent all his time building barns and then died in the middle of the night. And Jesus says, essentially condemns him and says he was rich towards himself and not towards God. And then also in Luke, an even more pointed story, the story of the rich man and the beggar. Do you remember that one? The rich man ignores the beggar living at his gate. He dies. He ends up in hell. He begs to be liberated. And Father Abraham says, nope. In the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says this directly, Woe to you who are rich, for you've already be comforted. And then in case you missed it, he says, woe to you who are full, whose stomachs are full, you shall go hungry. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and wrath destroy, says Jesus. Amos, woe to you who lounge on couches, who dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. James, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Paul, the love of money is the root of all evil. 
And I'm leaving a lot out. I could have said a lot more of them. These are pointed. These are hard. They're hard for me to hear. They're hard for us to hear. The Bible pulls no punches on this topic. Yes, the Bible never calls wealth in and of itself evil. Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money is the root of all evil. But if that's all you hear, if you walk away from all those texts and go, oh, phew, the love of money is the root of all evil. Honey, could you bring me my 401k statement, please? You're missing the point. Because Scripture is pointed. And Jesus is saying, watch out. Part of the reason the Bible is so pointed on this topic is because wealth is one of the strongest idols that there is. How strong? This is the only time in Scripture where Jesus says, follow me to someone, and the person doesn't do it. In every other case, Jesus says, follow me to someone, the person falls in behind and goes. This time, the man's fixation on his wealth is so strong, he cannot go. Wealth is a strong idol, and it is so strong because it pretends to offer you everything your heart desires. It gives you a facsimile of all the things we human beings most want. Just think about that. Everything that we want. What, what do you want in this world? Attention? Money gets you attention. You have money, you walk in a room, people say your name. Power? Pleasures, entertainment? Romantic attention? All of these things. Money says, I can give them to you. And it gives you a version of these things, but the deal it makes is say, first you got to get on my hamster wheel. I need your 65 hours a week. I need your focus. I need your attention. I need everything you have. And I will give you all of these things. All this can be yours if you follow me. The one thing wealth cannot deliver is meaning and satisfaction. This week I was reading a on the subject, obviously, and I read about a man named Abd al-Rahman III, a person I'd never heard of before, who was Abd al-Rahman III. He is a caliph in 10th century Spain, and he was fabulously wealthy. He was powerful. He ruled, and when he got to 70 years old, he looked back on his life of success, and this is his summary of his life at 70. I've now reigned 50 years in victory and peace. I'm beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, respected by my allies. Riches, honors, powers, pleasures, they have waited on my call. And the payoff? I have diligently numbered my days of pure and genuine happiness, which have fallen to my lot. They amount to 14. Caleb reminds me of the young man in our story. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Can you hear the restlessness, the desperation, the emptiness in his question? What must I do? I've done everything. I've enjoyed riches. I've, I've had success. I've sat at the table of the wealthy and the powerful. I've had beautiful women on my arm. I've tasted the delicacies of the finest restaurants, but something is missing. What must I do to inherit eternal life? When he asks that question, it's not just eternity, right? It's not just getting into heaven that he's looking for. He's looking for something right now. He's looking for the life that is eternal that starts right now. It's his life now and in the future that he's concerned about. But when you pay close attention to the way he asks the question, 
you see the heart of the reason why wealth and faith don't live so well together. The reason those two things don't live so well together is in his question. Listen. He says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Or what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Like, eternal life is something you get. Like, it's a possession. Like, it's a piece of real estate that you have the deed for. What must I do to get it? Jesus, I have a mansion on the Mediterranean, but it's not quite doing it for me. How do I get my hands? How do I get one of those mansions in the sky that I hear people talking about? He's thinking of it as a possession that he owns. And you know that that's the issue because when he turns away, it says, Jesus says, the scripture says, that the man was unable to follow because he had many possessions. It's the same verb as to get. To get and to have, same verb in the Greek. It's the having and the getting that this man is obsessed with and he can't stop. And here's where you see how wealth can be an obstacle to faith. Because when you live in a wealthy society like ours, you're trained in a kind of mythology. You're trained in a kind of rhythm. And that rhythm is working and achieving and then having and getting. Working and achieving and having and getting. And when you live in a wealthy society, you hear that rhythm, you hear that rhythm, that mythology. If you work hard, you'll get good things and you'll have a happy life. You look around you and you see people for whom it seems to be working. They're working and achieving and then they're having and getting and they're getting all kinds of cool stuff and you think, yeah, this works. So you jump on the hamster wheel with them. This young man would fit in very well in the 21st century. He's a 21st century guy. He's a lot like a lot of us. But this rhythm, working, achieving, having, and getting, it is not Jesus' rhythm. It is not the rhythm of the kingdom. Did you notice that when Jesus answers him, he changes the verb? The man says, what must I do to get eternal life? And when Jesus tells him what he must do, he doesn't say what you must do to get eternal life. He says what you must do to enter eternal life. The kingdom is not something you get. It's something you enter. When you get something, you have control of it. It's in your possession. When you enter something, it surrounds you and it has control over you. This young man is earnest and he's dedicated and heaven knows he wants to find the way to life, but he needs to learn an entirely new rhythm. He needs to stop with the working and the having and the getting. Because life with Jesus is not a having and getting story. It's a love story. And you don't get it by working and achieving. You get it by surrender. You surrender to the life of Jesus like a child. Here's an important fact if you want to understand this story. It's in all three synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all three synoptic gospels, it follows the same story. Did you notice what story comes right before this one? It's the story of the little children who come to Jesus. The little children come to Jesus in an entirely different way, right? It's not working and achieving and having and what can I do? A child comes to you and just throws up their arms and says, pick me up, daddy. I love you. Hold me. Surrender. I said earlier that this young man will fit right in with modern young people 
And I think that's true because I think modern young people are trained in that rhythm that the young man is following. Working and achieving and having and doing. Working and achieving and having and doing. And that's partly the mythology of our culture. That's partly the lure of our commercial culture, right? When you see hundreds of commercials every day in one way or another, they're all saying, hey, take this, it'll make you feel better. But it's not just that, it's also the way we raise our children. And by we, I mean we, the way I raise my children, the way I see people around me raising their children. What do we do with our kids as they're growing up? We get them super involved, hyper involved. We get them into sports, we get them into music, we get them in debate, whatever they want. We keep them super busy. Why do we do that? Well, it's partly because sports is great and music is wonderful and they can learn these things. But if we're honest, let's be honest. Part of the reason we get our kids hyper-involved is so that they will be successful. So that they will learn leadership and poise. So that they will be socially successful. So they'll get into that college. So that they will achieve. So that they will have. So that they will get. A lot of what our kids are exposed to, a lot of what we put our kids in the middle of, is training them in exactly the rhythm of this young man. But what if the central skill of life has nothing to do with working and achieving and having and getting? What if the central skill of the kingdom has absolutely nothing to do with working and achieving and having and getting? What is the central skill of life? What is the central skill for people who follow Jesus Christ? It's love. Christ's love. Self-sacrificial, cross-shaped love. And what is love? Surrender, giving yourself for the sake of someone else. I was trying to think of a picture this week of how this achievement rhythm was something totally different than the love rhythm and and what we want to train our kids for. And I thought of the story of an old parishioner of mine, a man named Tom DeGroat. I told this story years ago. Some of you may remember it. Tom DeGroat was someone that I met only in old age at my previous church. And when I met him, he was already diminished. He'd had a stroke, and I think it was about 1990, and it had made him almost completely aphasic. He only had about 10 words, and one side of his body didn't work very well, and he walked, but he walked with a terrible limp. I did Tom's funeral. He died, and at that funeral, his daughter got up and said a few words about her dad, and she told this story. She and her dad had had a difficult relationship, and they'd been conflicted. And when he had that stroke, he wanted to make up to her him. And so he tried, she tried to think of something she could do to get right with her dad, and she knew that her dad loved Hershey's Kisses, so she bought him a big bag of Hershey's Kisses, took him to her dad in the hospital, and said, Dad, I love you. Here, I brought you one of these. Give him a Hershey's Kiss. What she forgot was, because he just had a stroke, his fine motor was terrible. So he took this, this little Hershey's Kiss, and he started to try to unwrap the foil, and it took him forever. It took him almost 15 minutes to completely unwrap the foil. And it was painful for her to watch. But finally, after struggling, he got the whole chocolate unwrapped. And when he did, he didn't put it in his mouth. He gave it to her so that she could have it. That is a picture of what we want our kids to be, isn't it? That's the central skill of life. When we follow Jesus Christ, when we live cross-shaped lives, we unwrap 
little chocolates, we run wrap Hershey's Kisses, and we give them to each other in a million different ways, right? That's what we want, that's what we want our kids to learn. To be able to love other people like that is the greatest privilege in our life, and it is the privilege we will do in eternity. It is eternal life. That's how we will be living in eternity, with that kind of self-giving love for one another. Where will our children learn that skill? Where will we learn that skill? It won't be on their travel teams. It won't be as they try to achieve in their orchestras or in their choirs. It won't be on their debate team. It won't be at prom, as great as all those things are. They learn that skill here, at the foot of the cross, with God's people. Eating his food, hearing the stories of Jesus, loving each other and supporting each other in this Christian community. That's where you learn that central skill of life. It's great that our kids learn these habits of achievement. I hope all you kids achieve and succeed. But what good is it if a man gives, gains the whole world and loses his soul? I think Jesus said that. Jesus appears to be really hard on the young man here, right? He gives him a hard time. He really hits him hard. But that's because the man needs like a shock. He needs an intervention. And besides, he's not asking this young man to do anything that Jesus wouldn't do himself. In fact, what he asked this young man to do, Jesus is in the middle of doing right now because Jesus had everything. Jesus was beyond wealthy. He had all power and authority and might at the right hand of God. And what did he do with that? He unwrapped it. He gave it away. He took the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even on a cross, like we read about earlier in the service. And his whole life was about just taking bits of himself and giving it away to the poor, to the needy, speaking truth to power, unwrapping himself until he was completely stripped and hanging on a cross. And when all he had left was his body and his blood, he gave that away too to us. Jesus sold everything he had and gave it to the poor. And we're the poor, and what he gave us was everlasting life. Why did he do it? For love. Because he loves us so much, and he wants that love to be in us, and he wants that love to control every part of us, including our wealth. Amen. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to your cross again this morning. It's the center of our lives and the center of our hope. In life and in death, Lord, it's, it's where we come every week. Lord, teach us to live your way and to know your love for us as we go out into the world. Lord, you know that we sometimes worry too much about attention and achievement and success. Lord, make love our song today and every day. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.